Hi, welcome to Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. I'm Laurie Dean, Program Director for Dusty Discs Radio and one of the producers of this podcast. Now, regular listeners know that Dan Hare is the host of this show, but today we're turning the tables a bit because Dan is this week's very special guest. Regular listeners may also remember that when Liner Notes first started back in 2021, I actually talked with Dan then, he was the guest, and we talked about his stellar and long-standing musical career and some other aspects of his busy and very full life. And by the way, that interview is still available at linernotes.ca or on your favorite podcasting platform, and it's in a few different parts, three parts, I believe, so I really encourage you to check it out. But of course, not right now, because we got some other things we're going to talk to Dan about today. But before I get to that, let me give you a brief recap. Dan Hare has been in the music biz for over 40 years, and he fronts the March Hare Band, which has been a top show band since the late 90s. Dan is also a very accomplished singer, entertainer, a polished acoustic guitar player, and an impersonator. He stars in different tribute shows, mainly one for Bob Seger and one for John Fogarty, and they are fantastic. But today, Dan has some other exciting news. He has a new album called I Love This Life. So we're going to be talking about the songs on the album, some songwriting processes that he might go through, recording the album with the legendary sound engineer and producer Mike Fraser, and, well, a whole lot more. So let's just get to it. Welcome back, Dan, to the other side of the microphone, and thanks so much for agreeing to be the guest today. All right. Well, thanks, Laurie. Boy, that was quite the intro. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I just, I'm like the Energizer Bunny, which uh, kind of fits with my name. So I just <laughs> keep going and going and going. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dan, the album is fantastic. And I was very honored to have received an advanced copy from you before you actually did release it publicly. So again, thank you for that. And I've been listening to it several times since then, including a couple more times in preparation for today. And I have to tell you, it is quickly becoming a favorite of mine. Oh, there's just so, so much to talk about. I'm really excited to to get into it. So um, let's maybe just kind of start with an overview. How did this whole project come about at this point in your career? Well, no, I appreciate you saying that. Well, you know, it's funny. I've, I've recorded lots over the years and, you know, it's always a budget issue and a time issue. And of course, right. I've been a full-time musician. So pursuing a life of original music and touring was something I thought I wanted when I was in my early 20s. But then I quickly realized as I had a family and I had other things I wanted to do that, that I was kind of pursuing a life that I didn't really want to live. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a touring road musician playing original music. And a lot of my friends went on the, what we called the starvation tours. You know, they'd put out some songs and record some music and then they'd go out and, you know, basically do the starvation tour and try to promote their record. And and that right. has really minimal success. It's, it's a fun boy scout trip, I suppose, in some ways, but really in terms of building your band, it's a very, very, as you know, small fraction of people who ever sort of get to where they think they want to be. Right. And yeah. so I did lots of demos. I put out some CDs and stuff, but the, you know, the production and, and those kinds of things was never quite, it was just never quite what I wanted it to be. It sounded good, but it wasn't great. It just wasn't quite right. So I just, you know, it, it wasn't really a top priority for me because I had other things I was doing, but I've always had these songs. So then earlier in 2023, I woke up one morning and I just had this epiphany and I thought, you know, you're not getting any younger. You've got some songs that are pretty decent. You just need to go and record them and let people hear them, you know, a, a premium version of them, so to speak. Right. So yeah. that's what I did. So the songs themselves, they're not something you wrote specifically for this album. They're songs that you've been writing over the years. Well, that's the thing, you know, like uh, 
lot of the, the old saying how it goes in the music business, right? You have, you know, 10 or 20 years to write your first album and then you got a year or two to write the second, second album. second, yeah. Right? So because, you know, you, you gather songs and then you get to pick through. So, and something that Ian Thomas said when, when I interviewed him for liner notes, he said, you know, what we would do in the boomers is we would make the best demo tape we could. And then we'd go in the studio to record the album and try to beat the demo. Okay. And that was always their goal. And I thought, what a what a astute observation for him to make. And 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 it really stuck with me because I thought, that's right. You know, you want the best version. You can write a good song, but have a sort of an underrated or underproduced version of it, which is what I, I suffered from, I suppose, in some senses. And I had some good songs that I thought that sounded good. So but you can comb through your whole catalog and mm-hmm. say, well, which 10 songs do you think would maybe jump out or you think people would like to hear? Then you pick those and you treat all your previous recordings as a demo, basically. And then you go into a, a real studio with a real guy and say, look, let's do the best versions we can with these players. So that's wow. how that came about. And so the, the the songs themselves, well, well, for people who haven't listened to the album yet, it it seems to be the story of your life, a reflection of of the various aspects of things that have happened over the years of your life. So I'm just curious, as these things may have come up, did you write in the moment or is this something you reflected on and then years later you you wrote about it? Well, I think it's a combination because, you know, songwriters and, and poets in general try to write things that resonate with other people. So you have a, an experience and then you may take some artistic license and embellish that experience so that it becomes a common experience for lots of people, you know, right. loss or, you know, getting up in the morning and thinking you should be doing more or should be accomplishing more. Like everyone has those kinds of feelings. So you try to reflect that in the songs. And of course, they're based in my experience as well. So this this album in a lot of ways is the songbook of my life because I've taken some experiences and written songs around those experiences in a way that I hope resonates with other people. And I, th- I think it does. The initial feedback I'm getting has been strong. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I would agree. It definitely resonates with the listener. Because like you say, there are elements of these songs that we can all relate to, even though it's based on things that have happened in, in your life specifically as well. You know, when, when you interview the guests, a lot of times you talk about what the artist perceives as their musical style or musical genre and how that can be different from what the record company might see. So I'm just curious as to, would you categorize this as a rock and roll album or do you even give it a category? Well, I I did think of that. Of course, I think anyone who's serious about putting something out to the market has to has to consider that at least. I'm fortunate in the sense that it's an independent release, so I'm unencumbered. I don't have any anyone breathing down my neck saying we got to do this song and we got to do this genre. Right. So basically, I called it Don Hayes Music Dash Retro Rock because I wanted to put the description of what it is in the actual title. So every time you see the the music or if you go on Spotify or whatever, it's Don Hayes music retro rock. So people know what it is. I'm I'm a basically a grew up in in my teenage years in the 70s and that's the kind of music I relate to. So this is retro rock pop. And I think having the descriptor in the title kind of helps people realize what it is and and what I've found is I've done a boost on it and a bunch of people who I don't know have listened to it and enjoyed it because they kind of get a feel for what it is. So it's not hard rock. It's not heavy rock. It's sort of down the middle. So it's kind of rock pop, I would say. Yeah. Uh, retro rock pop. 
Retro rock pop. I, I totally agree. When I was listening to it as well, I thought it's rock and it's very retro feeling. You and I are roughly the same age, so I've, I think we grew up listening to the same kinds of music, and it certainly had that retro-y feel for me as well. Before we, I get into the next question, you mentioned Don Hayes, and I know when we talked way back when you explained how that came to be, <laughs> but since it's all uh, connected to the new album, can you once again tell the story of Don well, Hayes? <laughs> okay, well, the joke is, so in, in in the late 80s, I had a band called the Dan Hare Band, and I had a big sign on stage. It was 12 feet wide, and it said Dan Hare, D-A-N-H-A-R-E. And so we were, I remember it as clear as day because we were playing in Cranbrook and this woman came up to the, up to the stage and she goes, so, so who is Don Hayes anyways? <laughs> and I said, wow, there's only seven letters up there and you got two of them wrong. That's so, so uh, and maybe she needed some glasses or I something. I know. I was thinking, holy cow. So it became a band joke. I have people that still call me Don Hayes because like guys that I played with because it became a standing joke. Well, yeah. anyway, so, so when we went to form our music company. Um, we called it Dawn, D-A-W-N, Hayes, like the Hayes at Dawn. Right, okay. So I had a music company called Dawn Hayes Music. Very so, cool. And the reason it's called that is because I have four different entities and I have to keep them separate. So Dan Hare is my acoustic music and I do lots of those shows, very active. Mm-hmm. March Hare is the band, is our show band. And of course, that's very active as well. And then American Rock Legends is our John Fogarty, Bob Seeger. Uh, we do a Springsteen show with Brad and, and we've got a bunch of other stuff there. So those three entities have to remain separate. So I needed an, another name to call my original music. And it, it was really obvious to call it Don Hayes Music music because I've, I have donhays.com, donhaysmusic.com, and I've had this as a company for almost 20 years. That's yeah. my music company. Okay. So that's how the name came about. Very cool. And, and boy, you wear so many different hats too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it though. I mean, it's all music and it all makes my spirit smile, you know, well, so I'm it, good. Yeah. And, and um, again, once, not now people, but once you listeners go back and listen to the interview with Dan, you will understand how he basically created this career for himself and all of the fabulous things that he, he's gotten to do because of the, the choices he made way back when. The album being one of them right now, because it's, like you said, it's it was kind of the time to get it all done. And when you were ready to go to the studio, how did Mike Fraser come into the picture? Um, he was a guest on Lighter Notes, I know at one point, but how did you two connect to the point where he said, yeah, I'll go to the studio with you? Well, the thing with Mike is interesting because he and I have a lot of mutual friends because he went to school. He's a, a year older than I am, but he and I had lots of mutual friends from school. So I knew of him and I had spoken to him maybe once or twice in the past. And then we had him as a guest on Liner Notes. And I right. just really clicked with him right away. He and I were two peas in a pod. We had very similar experiences. Of course, him much greater than mine with all the, the bands that he had worked with. And so I just related to him so much and had so much respect for him. And I thought, if I'm going to do a real album in a real studio with a real guy, he was my first call. Right. So I just sent a message and said, hey, I want to do an album career entertainer here and would you do one with me and he said well yeah let's meet and have lunch so we had lunch and he said sure i'd love to work with you and then everything just went from there i mean i just can't say enough about how much love and respect i have for that guy he he's got the perfect temperament and sensibility musical sensibility experience but we really clicked as people and so we co-produced i said are you okay if we co-produce this which means you know, we both get an equal say in what we're doing. And he said, fine. 
um, you're the music guy. He said, I lean more to the technical side. You lean to the music side and we'll, we'll work it out. And it just worked out perfectly. Like we agreed on almost everything. Um, he deferred to me on the musical stuff because I have more experience in that regard. And I deferred to him on the uh, technical stuff because he's, you know, his resume is three miles long and it just worked out great. And, and honestly, we'll be friends for life, you know, after this, uh, whole recording experience at the armory and then we did a whole bunch of overdubs at the smaller studio here and i just can't say enough about it it was just fantastic yeah that's what i was going to ask you is where the whole thing was recorded so at the armory the main recording yeah so the armory i guess was built by jim valance who we've also had on the the liner notes podcast and then he sold it um Shortly after that, to I can't escape. Oh, to Bruce Fairburn bought it. Sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but I should just indicate that you are in the Greater Vancouver area, so people yes, get a sense of where enough. the armory yeah. is. Okay. Yeah, in the armory in Vancouver. So then Bruce Fairburn bought it, and of course Bruce Fairburn passed away in 1999, and then so it got transferred, I think, back to the family. But they've kept it going, and it's still a world class studio. And so I needed to make sure that the songs were recorded properly in a proper environment. And Mike knows that environment very well. So I deferred to him. He said, look, I'd like to do it at the armory. So we went there uh, and recorded the bed tracks. Then we recorded all the overdubs at my smaller studio here in, in Surrey. And then we went back to the armory to mix it. Who are the musicians that are playing with you on this? Are they members of your other bands? Well, some are, but um, the thing is, there's a, there's a great bass player around Vancouver called Billy Mendoza, and I've known him for years, and he's just fantastic, and he's got such a, a nice flavor and the way that he plays, I just love, and and he's just such a he's a sweetheart of a person too. I love the guy; he's just he's just first class. And so he was doing a gig, and I went to him last February, I guess it was, and he was playing a gig, and I felt bad for me had a cold and stuff, and I said, Billy, I'm doing an album, and I want you to be on it. He goes, Okay, Dan, yep, you give me a call. And of course, a lot of guys chirp about that stuff and it never mm-hmm. comes about. I said, I'm serious. I'm going to call you. So he was my first call as far as musicians go, because he's okay. such a great bass player and, and such a sweet guy. And then um, Andrew Johns, who is uh, was in Boulevard and still is in Boulevard. I guess they're they're still uh, functioning. And then Andrew's a virtuoso keyboard player. I mean, he does the Elton John Yellowbrook Road Experience. Elton John, he lives quite near you, actually, up in the interior. That's right. Yeah. And, he was uh, also a guest on Liner Notes. Yes, he was. We had him on. Yeah. And so, but I've known Andrew for many years. So, so that was an easy call to make and he lives up in the interior. So I had to make some logistical arrangements, which we did. And then I talked to both of them and we said, well, who, who do you want to use on drums? Cause I wanted to go in and record an album with musicians and play mm-hmm. it in a real way with real musicians. And, and, and so that I wanted a studio team together and they both said Randall Stoll. And, and I knew of Randall, I didn't know him, but great drummer plays a Tom Cochran I think now and plays a soul stream and he's been on tons of recordings he's the armories is like a second home so um, they both said let's do it with Randall because we've done a bunch of shows a bunch of recording with him and he's fantastic and it was just the perfect call so we had this great group of people to record the bed tracks with Andrew and Randall and and Billy and myself so I was just like you know and Mike's at the helm and everything just really gelled right away you know it was just great that's really interesting that, you know, the timing of this, you know, yeah. perhaps had you tried to do this 10 years ago, it may not have worked out in the terms of getting the kind of quality of musicians or Mike even for that matter, because the whole album is top notch. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, the, these guys, 
were nice in the sense that, you know, you get hired for studio gigs and I've done lots too, where you, you know, that you might not, you know, you, you don't make a value judgment on the songs or whatever. You're a, a paid musician, you're paid, you're paid to play these songs and you go in and play them. And these guys were really enjoying the music and really enthusiastic about it and and proud to do it. And, and, and Mike really warmed my heart because at the end of it, he said, I'm proud of this project. And that's unsolicited because he doesn't have to say that. And, and really, I mean, everyone who's been a studio musician or an engineer or, or producer has produced some stuff that they don't necessarily love, but they do it as part of their professional career. So, so how did that work? Uh, maybe just take me through a little bit of, of one of the, the recording processes where you and the band are in the studio, Mike's at the board. What kind yeah, well, of relationship was that like? Well, Mike was full producer, so he he, okay. he had full license to say or do anything he wanted. So he could interject musically, technically, in any way. So Mike and I did some pre-production. We met several times, went through the songs, rearranged some of the arrangements, talked about the songs, which ones would be strongest, how we wanted to record them. Then we had the band guys get together at my small studio here, and we did some pre-production there and talked about, okay, here's what we're going to do, just so you're not wasting time in, mm-hmm. in an expensive studio. When you go in there, you have some semblance of what you're going to do. Right. And so we did some pre-production, and so we had a pretty good sense of what we were going to do when we got in there. And then, of course, they've got the ISO booth, so you have to isolate primarily me because I was singing. So they set up the drums, the bass, and the keys were in the main room, and then I was glassed off, but we could all see each other so we could play together like a band. That was okay. most important to me because, yeah. you know, I don't know if people realize it or not, but but I would say most of the music you hear nowadays is manufactured with pieces. So you, mm-hmm. the, the drummer and bass player may play, and then everything else is stacked on top of that, or it's all sort of pieced together or created in the studio. The old school way is to just go in with a bunch of your friends and play good music with a good feel. And I was going to ask you about that. So you've, you've essentially gotten into the next area I want to talk about is the difference between old school recording versus now. What was it about? Well, again, it's retro, I suppose. But what was it specifically about creating in the quote unquote old fashioned way that you think elevated this album to the next level? Well, because when we started, you just get a bunch of friends together and you play music and you, and you learn to, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship. If I can use that word, you know, you're, you're breathing back and forth, you know, you're not playing to an absolute click. Like some, some songs, when you hear them, they're all what they call quantized. So it's every beat is exact. It's like a machine playing it. Some of the songs you hear, the drums aren't even real. It's not even a drummer playing and it doesn't matter. They don't care. Yeah. So it's quantized and it's a mechanical drummer and it doesn't have that sort of breathing feel. There's a, there's a great article, I can't remember who wrote it, but it said about the 70s music, how it was perfectly imperfect. Yeah. That there were flaws, there was gum and glue, as Garth Richardson likes to say, that, <laughs> that holds these recordings together, but there's something really cool about it. Yeah. And even Ian Thomas said that in our interview, that uh, he wanted to go in with the boomers and just record live off the floor, just mm-hmm. play like we used to play. That's where the magic happens. I was just going to say that makes such a huge difference. So much today, like you're talking about, it's manufactured. And a lot of times the people aren't even necessarily all together in a recording studio. Somebody sends in their part from somewhere else in the world. Well, that happens all the time. That's a common thing now. And the other thing is too, is drum replacers. So you'll get a drummer to go in and play, he plays on some kit that doesn't sound that great necessarily, but every tom is replaced. Every snare hit is replaced with a different sound. Well, you lose something in that process. It's not a perfect process. You lose the ghost notes. You lose a little bit of the feel. The guy might quantize it a little bit or correct, you know, they'll go through and manually correct every kick hit. So it's 
perfectly on the beat and stuff. But that doesn't sound, that's not the way we play. Right. Right. You listen to some old Motown hits and stuff. I mean, you know, it speeds up in the chorus and pulls back in the verses. Well, that's the way we play. That's when you're playing live with the band, you do those things and it sounds cool. So I wanted to capture that. And that's why we had to go to the armory for three days and and do the bed tracks. So we got the bases of that and all the drums on there is, is all Randall stole. They're his drums. They sounded beautiful. Like I called the butter drums. I couldn't believe it. I got there. We were supposed to start the session at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we all get there at 10 o'clock. Randall's already there. Everything's all set up within an hour. I'm in the control room. His drums are coming through the control room and they just sound perfect. I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. (laughs) So he was spot on. Like, I just can't say enough about the guys. And and of course, Andrew is a musical genius. So it was just great. And for you as as a um, the person in charge of all of putting it all together, including working with Mike, uh, you know, getting in touch with him and saying, "I want to do this." How does it make you feel when the project meets or even exceeds your expectations? Well, it's it's great because it's something you know for me it's a bucket list and it's something I always wanted to do. I just wanted to go into a real studio with real guys and record a real album that I can be proud of. That the production won't get in the way or or the playing won't get in the way that you can have you know, the best or a really, really decent version of songs that you've written. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I got. So in that sense, I'm thrilled. And I made it a good experience for them too. Like I wanted to have fun. I wanted that fun to translate onto the record. And these guys are all quite funny and, you know, we're cracking jokes. We're, we're doing serious work, but in the context of of having fun and hoping that translates into the music. And I think um, it did. I'm sure it did. It absolutely did. Even in some songs, if you listen lyrically and you think it might be a bit of a more serious subject, the element of fun and excitement and enjoyment comes through as well in the whole production of it. I hope so. so. I, certainly for me, it did. You know, I, I just made it a good experience for everybody. And and again, that the team of people that you have with Mike at the helm and, you know, Mike interjected and added a lot as producer and, and, uh, but, but it was all trying to get the best product we could get. That was the whole goal. You guys are all on the same page in that regard, it sounds like. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Back to the songs for just a bit. You mentioned that you kind of culled through your catalog to pull together these 10 songs. There are 10 songs on the album. What were you looking for when you were going through the songs? Did you have anything in mind, uh, specifically in terms of an overall vision besides the retroness? Or was it just this song is a bit stronger than perhaps another song? Yeah, there was that part of it. I mean, everyone has their musical flavor, right? Mm -hmm. Their musical sensibility. And I wanted to put together 10 songs that reflect my flavor because there's lots of great music out there. You and I both know that there's been lots of fantastic albums and songs recorded. And I just wanted to put my hat in the ring and I thought, well, I have a particular flavor and I want to put out 10 songs that kind of reflect my flavor. And, and that's, and, and then I had some songs that I thought, you know, the, the lyrics are, there's some clever lyrics in in there and there's some good melodies in there because mm-hmm. I think what what I find now with songwriting is the the melodies aren't are mostly not that strong. It, they, you don't create an earworm with a the melody. There's a lot of monotone melodies and ones that don't stick with you or create an earworm and I wanted some melodies that are distinct and and would stand out to people. So there was all of that, you know, songs that reflect my life, songs that have good melodies, songs that have some clever lyrics and, and songs in a package that reflect my flavor. Are there musical influences that come through in these songs based on your experience growing up with these, the kind of music we've been talking about, music from the 60s, 70s, etc., as well as what you've just gained 
in, in terms of your own professional career, anything that's been influencing you that you could pinpoint, or is it just kind of all melded together at this point to create your unique sound? Well, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, it, it, hopefully it melds together and then you come up with something that's that's more from that, right? So you, so you can't be divorced from your influences because they're part of your musical sensibility. So, you know, I, I think of the Guess Who, which was my favorite band for many years. And, and Burton is one of my favorite singers ever. And I tried to emulate him a lot. Elton John, of course, is the greatest singer-songwriter, mm. I think, probably who ever lived. Um you know, Gordon Lightfoot, like there's certain people who, Steve Miller, uh, the Cars, I like that kind of flavor. It's pretty clean. The melodies are pretty distinct. Um, the guitar playing, I'm not, I'm not a wiggly, wiggly woo kind of a guitar player that, you know, I find some, if I may say, some recordings now I find that people try too hard. Yeah. To be complicated and to be more, you know, they're trying to break ground, but they're they're trying too hard. They're overshooting it. And it's funny because when we had Jim Valance on the on the podcast, he made that point. He said, I went to a certain level in my musical training, but my strength is finding things that people can relate to, hooks that people get in their brain and stuff. And he said that most of those are not overly complicated. They're fairly simple. Yeah. And I'm I sort of come right up the middle, you know, where, you know, I, I got some you know, some clever chord changes, I hope in some spots and that, but I want to, I want it to be accessible to the broadest range of people. And that's my musical sensibility. That's how I make a living. When you were taking these songs to the studio, did you have an idea of the arrangement in your head for each of the, the, the parts and the instruments, or was it something that unfolded? You talked about having pre-production and, and not wasting time in the studio, but I'm just wondering how specifically you were prepared in, in that regard, because there's some really cool and interesting musical arranging going on in these songs, and I'm wondering how much of that was a bit spontaneous versus planned. Right. And, and it's a good point because it's a push-pull. You know, you have a skeleton sort of framework. Okay, here's how we think the song should go. You want to keep it under four minutes. I think every song is under four except one or possibly two, but you want to keep them reined in. But then you don't want to squash anyone's creative license. You know, right. you want to, you, you want to give, you bring in these guys in and if they have an idea or something that they think should go a certain way, I, I would never squash that. I have a, a saying in the band, you know, everybody's a star on my stage. Anyone okay. who's on stage with me is a star. I don't care. Just knock them out, knock them dead. And, and in the studio, it's the same thing. Everyone's a star in my studio. Like if you got something that you think is cool that you want to add, you know, we, we, it, we may not do it, but, uh, you know what, we're doing it because, uh, uh, if it sounds cool. And there was lots of that. There was lots of little stuff. You know, Andrew said, well, let's do a little building thing here. Well, da 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 And then you got Billy to learn the part and they learned it and put that in the song. Nice. Um, yeah. Randall had lots of suggestions. Like he's really an experienced drummer and really like top notch. And so he had a few suggestions and I think I accepted every one of them because he said, what do you think? Can I do this here? What do you think about that? And I thought, you know, I don't want to squash his sort of artistic um, input. And uh, so I, I'm, I was prepared to say yes as much as possible. And right. then if something didn't work, we, we didn't. But th that was really minimal. And everyone, I think everyone, I, I can't speak for them, but I think everyone felt like they contributed their flavor to my flavor. Which elevates the whole dish to a, another I level. I think so. I yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah. With the um, the songs that are the ten songs that are on the album, if I can jump to some of them specifically, maybe just throw out a couple sure, of titles yeah. and we can yeah. talk about <laughs> the intricacies of them. Um, I do have to say though, I, uh, when you did um, send me the the album 
prior to public release, she asked me to pick my top three favorite. And holy smokes, what a tough choice <laughs> I had. And as I'm listening to things again and again, I'm going, oh, wait a minute. No, I want this one in there. Oh, oh wait a minute. I love the fact that it was so difficult to pick the top three. I, I think that, that. says the, a, a lot about the strength of the whole thing. But specifically for, for some of the songs I just wondered about, and one of them is Wonderland. It has a bit of a carnival vibe to me when I listen to it. Can you talk a bit about that, how that came about? So uh, um, people may not know the story of Kim Baskerville, but she was our singer in March Hare for many years. And she and I were the principals of Don Hayes music. And we did seminars and we did recording. We did some jingles. We did a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, Kim sadly passed away on August 11th, 2011. And she took her own life and, mm-hmm. and didn't want to be here anymore. And, and yes. uh, she was my musical partner in in the writing and stuff. And she looked at being on stage. That's really a tribute to her because she looked at being on stage as being a playground. She said, the stage is my playground. Okay. I'm like a kindergarten kid in a playground. That's the way I feel when I'm on stage. And she was, you know, a one in a million, like fearless on stage and just was like a kid in a candy store on stage and people loved it and it really elevated our band. I mean, she took our band, we were a three piece guy band and she took us to the next level and, and her, like I said, her performance and she was fearless on stage. So we, we sat down to write a song and she said, I want to write a song called Wonderland and I want it to be about being on stage and how much fun that is. I'm sorry for your loss. That was a, a yeah, devastating well, blow for you, I know. Oh, it was just terrible. But what a f- fabulous tribute to be able to have this in there. And, and in, in such a way, it is very much that fun atmosphere, that carnival vibe of just having a really, really good time. Well, the interesting thing about that song is I had nine songs picked and I didn't know which song I should do for the 10th song. So Mike came over and we were going through my catalog and playing songs. And I didn't think to do that one because it, it's not really totally my flavor as far as what I would mm-hmm. do because Kim sang we, the original version we did we did an album called Wonderland and we had that on it and Kim sang it and it was kind of her song because it was her her experience and so Mike listened to all the songs and he listened to that one he goes oh we got to do that one so he Mike actually picked that one for the album interesting interesting he obviously heard something in it that he felt would work he liked the hook and he just thought, you know, it would be, it would be a good song. It's easy to like, it's fun, it's fast, it's different, but it's, it's completely different than the other songs, right? It's mm-hmm. the one that kind of go, oh, okay. So that reflects Kim more than it does me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I relate to that too. You know, you want, yeah. you want to make your stage experience fun and that is what the song is about. What about Pushin', the very first song on the album? Well, that, that song came about, you know, I've always been, uh, the kind of person who I get up in the morning and I go, well, okay, well, what am I accomplishing here? What, you know, I'm, I'm a very accomplishment driven kind of a person. Right. And I thought, okay, when it comes to writing about certain things, like most songs are love songs, right? And right. I mm-hmm. even on this album, six or seven of them are, or some, some form of that. Yeah. But I wanted to write songs about different topics. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a song about, you know, pushing forward and trying to be better and trying to do the best you can. And how do you do that? And what's the mentality behind that? So I came up with this little bouncy kind of a groove and I thought, okay, this is cool. And then uh, the, the lyrics just evolved from that. And it just, yeah, just came about from that. Just just pushing forward and, and thinking about um, making plans and, and staying on it and accomplishing things. When you're writing, do you write the lyrics first or the or the music first? Yeah, it depends. You know, like quite often you get a you get a hook and you get a chorus and you think, oh, that sounds cool. Or or in that case, I wrote the riff first. Okay. 
and I thought, okay, what are, what are, what are we going to write about? So sometimes it, it's all different. Sometimes you get a, a good lick or hook, and then you you write something around that. Uh, sometimes you have lyrics, and you just write out the lyrics, and, and the music comes. Okay. So it just depends. Yeah, so you're just basically open for whatever comes your way, and then you'll work it into a song. I think so. I mean, a lot of songwriters talk about you reach up into the ether and you try to pull out melodies or or lyrics that kind of match and stuff. And I've had really good response to that song because it's a little bit tongue in cheek, you know. Like, mm-hmm. like for example, I do the moo at the end of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Well, well the thing is, okay, I, I I don't like to brag, but I have a pretty good moo. I mean, I could turn a cow's head with my moo. Okay, <laughs> I mean, they go like. <laughs> You see, I'm one of their relatives. So, and then, you know, the funny thing about that, Andrew John sends me an email. Was that my moo? I said, no way, man. That was my moo. He thought it was his. Oh, he mooed as well? Well, he tried. He thinks he can. I don't, I think I'm better, but. uh, You guys have to have a contest. (laughs) I know, exactly. I'm a moo off. A moo off. Yes. (laughs) There's a song. But I'm not giving that moo away. I'm copywriting it. Because, um, but anyway, so what happened was we recorded the whole song and then we had the stops at the end. And of course we do the bass and then we do the keyboard, then we do the drums. And I did Mm -hmm. the, ah, and I needed one more. And I thought really every song should have a moo in it. I think somewhere, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so there it is. There's a title for your next album. Every song should have a moo. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. So that's funny. So that's how that came I was just, I wondered like, what? (laughs) It works though, but it was like so unexpected. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, is that that moo at the end of pushing encapsulates the whole recording experience. Like, like Mike Fraser said, when he was here, we, we spent about 120 hours recording the overdubs and stuff. Wow. Right? And Mike said, he said, I think we spent about 80 hours recording and about 40 hours laughing. <laughs> Because I kept him, I kept him, I wanted it light. I wanted to have fun, right? So the For mood sure. really encapsulates everything we did. And it's a tongue-in-cheek song, hey. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a bouncy cruising. My buddy said it's a cruising tune. Yeah. What about Take the Time, kind of on the other side of the coin, not so bouncy per se? Well, that song came about because, um, you know, obviously I had to write it from a male perspective. It, it would be better from a female perspective, because, okay. you know, that the old, um, where the husband has a job and he's gone 12 hours a day or you're running your own business and you're just never around and you get married to someone and you're never there and, and you're trying to create this life and, and build this life and then live that life. And it's really hard to do because you're never there. So being a guy, I had to write it from the, the, the male perspective because a lot of women are upwardly mobile now and, and have jobs that are stressful and, and time consuming. I mean, we forget as we, as we sit here talking, there's people that work 10, 12 hours a day, 60 hours a week that we aren't aware of. But if you're managing a hotel or, or doing a serious job, you're, you're gone 60 hours a week. Right. So I thought I wanted to tap into that sensibility. So that, that's not really my case. That that's not a, a personal song in that sense. I, I was writing it for women who feel that they've married someone that's never there. But I had right. to write it from a male perspective because it's me right. singing it. So yeah. that's how that came about. Okay. A couple of more songs I just wanted to ask you about as well, Dan. And one of them is I do have to admit, you know, whenever I listen to the album and I, I have trouble figuring out the top three, this one still comes out at number one for me. And I think it's a real power ballad. What have I been missing? So can you talk a little bit about that song specifically? Yeah, well, that song is is really 
was written from my heart about my experience. You know, it's funny, we do the Bob Seger shows and Turn the Page is the song we get asked about most and it's about being on the road. Mm -hmm. And there's something in that song that resonates with people. And this is kind of my Turn the Page, if you will, um, because everyone's had that sort of wilderness experience or you're trying to chase a dream. You're not even sure what the dream is sometimes. You're just out there trying to do your thing and trying to make something out of yourself. And you're doing the best you can, but you're struggling and, and you're fighting through it. And and for that song in particular, you know, people sometimes talk about songs that are easy to write. I literally wrote that song in 10 minutes because wow. I was up in Castlegar, which is a small town in BC. We were on the road. I had, a, you know, five guys in the band, I think, and two or three crew guys. And, you're, you know, you're not making much money. And my truck broke down and I, I could not afford it, and I had to get it towed. So we're at this town, and we're at this gig. I'd been out of town for probably a month at that point. When and would I this have been? Late 80s, early 90s, probably okay. late 80s. So I called my wife, and I said, you know, I'm just so depressed. I'm just so down. Like, my truck's broken down. I got no money, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just so hard. And she said, well, just come home. And I said, well, I can't. I've got seven people out here. I've got crew. I've got a truck. I've got gigs. I, I got to go and do these shows. And she goes, well, just come home. And I said, well, I, I can't. And she goes, well, you don't know what you're missing. You know, the kids are here. And, and I said, well, I know what I'm missing. I, I get it. You know, I, I mm -hmm. just can't right now, but I will. And it was shortly after that, I went back to Vancouver and said, that's enough. But so I sat down and I thought, what have I been missing in the name of rock and roll? I'm chasing this dream and I'm missing you know, my, my family. And, and that's why I say in the song, I left my home and family and set out on the road. That's me. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't do it because I thought like, I'm going to lose something that's more valuable. And, and, you know, I tell that story in the, in the Bob Seger show, but when I went home, my son was two years old. He pulled away from me. He didn't recognize me and it just ripped my heart out. I thought, yeah. well, this, there's no gig in the world that's worth that. I, I don't care. I, I don't care if I play for a million people, it's not worth that. So I just made a decision. I, I stayed around Vancouver and, and, you know, raised my kids and, and did my thing. But, uh, so I, I wrote that song within literally 10, 15 minutes. And then I, I, the band learned it and we played it, I think the next night. That's really powerful, not only to have written it so quickly, but to have your whole band be able to play it within like a day. Yeah. And it's just, it's a simple tune, but it, again, it resonates, resonates and that's yeah. what you want. You know, people can say, oh, I get that, you know, like everyone's had that experience where you're not sure your life is a bit uncertain and you're not sure what you're going to be, or, you know, you want to make something out of yourself, I guess, in some mm -hmm. measure. Mm -hmm. So, and then what, what are you leaving, leaving behind in order to do something like that? Yes. And, and you talk about what you did when you did make the decision to go back to Vancouver and you created this whole amazing musical career for yourself. So that is in the other interview that I did with Dan way back in 2021. So again, people go to linernotes.ca and check that out. It's remarkable how Dan has built his career over these 40-some years, and that's a huge part of it. And, of course, getting to be around with your family while you're doing it. So very, very Well, powerful. I appreciate that. I mean, I wanted to do it all. I didn't, I didn't yep. look at it. It's one or the other. You either play music and you be a road musician, or you come back and you work for a plumbing and heating company or something. Right. Not, yep. not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that that wasn't my path. So yep. I had to figure out how to do all of it. And have my kids love me at the end, you know, and they do. Yeah. So <laughs> that's really important. That was really important to me because totally. I, I had so many musician friends who, who left their family and made the choice yeah. and regretted it later. And I said, that's never going to be me. I can't, I can't do that. So, you know, I've, I've been blessed. I, I'm thankful. And I, I made the right decision at the right time. But that was the song that was really pivotal and, and is really personal for me.
And then the title track of the album, I Love This Life, is that kind of a full circle moment for you? Is that you now? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, there's lots of, again, there's, when we talk about topics and songs, songwriting and things that you write songs about, love songs, of course, are always trump everything, but, uh, Having difficult times is is another common theme, and I've got a couple of those, I suppose, or one anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to write some uplifting songs. You know, it's funny. I watched. We've had Gil Moore and Rick Emmett on the Liner Notes podcast, and I watched the Triumph uh, documentary that was mm-hmm. put out like, a couple of years ago. Now, I think you watched it too. But uh, yeah. really, really great. But one of the points they made in that was that all the songs were positive. They had a positive, you know lyrics and mm-hmm. the songs were positive right fight the good fight and i love triumph i mean they're one of my favorite bands yeah. ever and they have a positive message and i and i thought you know like i'm really thankful like i really do feel like i have a blessed life and i'm thankful so i'm going to write some things about that and yeah. so that song is quite personal for me too you know strumming on a beat up six string everything's better when i sing the music makes the world a better place and i feel better when i'm singing and playing and when did you write that one that was written over the last probably 10 years. Okay. I've shaped it. Like a lot of songs are never, you know, quite often, I think more often than not, songs are a process. You know, we, we had yep. Mark Jordan on the on the podcast and he talked about that. You know, you, yep. you shape them and you write them, then you put them away, then you pull them out, and then you fix them a little more, then they sit on the shelf for another five years, and then somebody records it. You know, that's the process typically. Sure. Yeah. And so for that song, that was for me, I've recorded numerous versions of it and shaped it. And, and that's why when you hear it now, you're hearing the final version of a whole bunch of sort of, you know, polishing and shaping and, and putting it together. So that song was written over, over the last 10 years. And why did you want to make that the the title of the album? I wanted a positive message. I wanted it to reflect me and my life. And I wanted to, you know, do somewhat of an autobiography, I suppose, but something again, that people can relate to and say, Hey, you know, you only get one life, just one chance to get it right. So we all do the best that we can. That's the line in the song. And I, I hope that that's the case for everybody. When I sing that, you get one shot at it. And it doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect ride, but you know, you can do what you can and learn from the ups and downs and, and the mistakes and uh, carry on. Well, yeah. And uh, when I wrote my book, I interviewed people between the age of 65 and 100. And one of the ladies, I, I asked this lady, did you have a happy life? She goes, no, I didn't have a happy life, but I had a good life. And I thought, interesting. She goes, I had lots of struggles in my life, but it was a good life. Yeah. And I, and of course she's probably 80 or 90 years old at that point. But again, that you only get one life, just one chance to get it right. So do the best you can to get it right. And that was the message that I gave myself and that I hope would resonate with others. Well, it certainly does, particularly in that song. So the album again is finally out. Everyone can have a listen. So what are you doing now in terms of promoting it and marketing it? Well, I've, uh, I'm just in the process of doing all that. I'm getting some CDs done because apparently I, I wasn't even thinking of that, but apparently people do like the hard copy. They still like to see yep. the, the liner notes and the sleeve and, and whatever else. So I'm getting some of those done. I've released it on Razor Distribution. So anyone who has uh, any kind of streaming service, it's Razor. I you're going to put the um, the link in the. I will put the link podcast, in yeah. in the description too. But if you want to just maybe tell people now as well, that would be great. Yeah, just look for Don Hayes Music Retro Rock. I love this life on any of the platforms: Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, YouTube, Title, Deezer. It's it's on everything. Okay. Um, perfect. it's through Razor. R a y z o r d i s t r o dot l n k dot t o long one. I love this life. Um, it's easy to find. 
So I'm promoting it through that. I've done a Facebook boost, which has been kind of refreshing because I did a Facebook boost, uh, hoping that, you know, people would pass it on and, and share the link and stuff. And I've had a whole bunch of people like really positive response from people who I don't know. Great. Which is nice because again, you know, people with recording, you know, some people they'll write and record songs and then they want to promote the songs, but you do that mostly to your friends and family. And then it kind of dies after that because the songs don't carry you need people in your audience who don't know you from Adam, don't care in a sense, but they like the song. I mean, unless you can get that and, and, you know, you can talk about bands like the Stampeders or whatever, but they had those songs. There's, you know, when a band like the Stampeders made it, there was thousands of other bands out there recording songs and stuff, but their songs stood out. And speaking of, you know, back in the day, this, it's so much different as you, you know, you talk about with your guests all the time about marketing, promoting today versus back in the seventies, eighties, whenever. So (laughs) I was going to say, how is it different? But, you know, as you say, you, you know, when you ask your guests that they generally laugh because there's really nothing the same about it at all anymore. What kind of challenges does this present to you now to get heard amongst the noise? So for me, I'm in a quite a good position because I sort of reverse engineered it. I thought, well, I, I've won. Everything's good for me. Like then if, if this is as good as it gets in my life, I'm good. So I, I'm not, um, you know, a 25 year old striving, uh, you know, living in a one bedroom apartment with a mattress, trying to make something out of myself. I'm good. Yeah. So I'm not, um, doing the starvation tour or anything. So if I, what I wanted to do was start with a good product. I wanted to do 10 of my best songs in the best version that I could do. And that is the win for me. So in terms of winning and losing, I've won. Um, uh, There's something like 50 or 60,000 songs a day uploaded to Spotify and stuff. So I'm not, you know, that's in that sort of morass. I'm not trying to compete in that at all. And so what I thought was, of all those songs that are uploaded, how many of them are really good? How many of them would really resonate with people? probably just a small fraction, same as it was in the past, right? Mm-hmm, you got a right. thousand bands and one band makes it through all that. How is that? They just got songs that resonate with people. They're well-recorded. They tie into something that needs to be tied into. Um, so that was my my goal. I just thought I'll do the best versions of the best songs that I can. And then hopefully, as good salesmen always say, the product sells itself. Mm-hmm. I have a buddy who works for Honda and and he works at a Honda dealership. And he said, he said, it's great because people come in, they've already decided to buy the car. I just have to help them with the color and stuff. We're on the lemonade book, we're tops, you know, the Hondas are great vehicles. People do their research and they come in and they go, we want to buy a Honda CRV. <laughs> it's like, right, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's almost reversed. He said, I'm not, yeah. you don't have to hard sell anybody. They've already decided they want one before they come in. Well, that's a car salesman's dream. So I sort of piggybacking on that, I thought, well, just do a good product. Like yeah. it's not about promoting it. I, I've, I've had people that, you know, if I may say in, in sort of, um, uh, unkind terms, but you know, they'll write a bit of a turd and they'll record the turd and they'll polish the turd and mm-hmm. then they'll promote the turd. And then all they're saying is, well, I really need to promote this better. Well, not really. I mean, your family and friends have heard it. It's not yeah. that great. Um, you can promote it till you're blue in the face, but you're not going to, people are a hundred percent expert in what they like, and you're not going to talk anybody into liking something that they don't, they don't really care for. Going off of that, I thought just do good versions and hope that they take on a life of their own, which is what I'm hoping. Well, I think they are doing that because every song on this album could stand alone and someone would, would 
gravitate to it based on the quality of the song. And in addition to what's they're getting out of it and for personal messages, if you will, but you kind of, I think went about it the right way. Maybe it's a great lesson for up and coming musicians in this day and age, start with an excellent product first and foremost, and worry about the rest later in terms of promoting and all that. Yeah. And I would say like, like for example, the music business is saturated now. So you, you made the point in a good one that when I asked people how the music business has changed in the last 50 years, they just laugh because it's completely different Yeah, and it's very saturated now. There's no gatekeepers. Anybody can, anybody and their dog can record a song and put it up on Spotify. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean anything. It just means you're on Spotify. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, let's look at it both ways. Yeah, it's a bad thing in the sense that it's saturated. It's a big shotgun blast of a whole bunch of songs. But it's a good thing in the sense that if your stuff's going to stand out, it has to be exceptionally good. So do the best versions of the best songs that you can and hope it cuts through somehow and and a few people hook on to it. So mm-hmm. it can be a good thing. It just if you look at it in a positive way, which is what I was doing. And again, I told Mike, like I'm not I'm not a new wave guy. I'm not a new chasing anything. I'm an old school guy. I'm gonna write it out old school. We're gonna record old school tunes the best that we can, put them out there and see if people like them. So yeah. That's my philosophy, and that's I think will work. And again, you know, I sent it out. I've got people to share it. Um, we'll see. It's only been out for a week, so mm-hmm. the positive feedback I've had has been really encouraging, and I'm thankful. And uh, we'll see where it goes. I did send, um, for example, we've had Peter Foldy on the podcast, and he said he wanted to to uh, listen to some of the songs and may even use one of them in the, some of the movie productions he's doing. So I sent him a copy of it, and he said thanks. And so there's all kinds of tentacles yeah. out there, and we'll see if if a song resonates with a particular, you know, whatever a yeah. movie, radio station, a group of people, who knows, and and. I don't want to say who cares because that sounds a little bit flippant. I do care, but but I'm good. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you don't care so much that it's a life or death situation. No. And who knows? It might end up in one of Peter's movies. It might end up in someone else's movie. Like that's a whole other area where these songs can appear. For sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, the most money I ever made off a song was a song I had in a TV show in the States. You know, I got one mm-hmm. of my songs in a, in that the TV series, The Glades. Okay. And it was just a, a little bit of a thing, but I, I made some pretty good money off of that. So you just never know. And and again, I'm not totally motivated by money. I don't want to, I mean, this cost me a lot of money to do mm-hmm. and I paid for it myself. So uh, it wasn't uh, inexpensive. I don't want to say the number, but it was a lot. And uh you know, I probably will never get that money back, but if there is some modicum of success somewhere, somehow I would invite that. But uh, again, it's a win no matter what. So I'm good. Yeah. Well, good for you. You just did the best product that you possibly could do with these great songs. And um, any chance you'll look at the remaining songs and want to do this again? Put another well, I told up? Mike that. I mean, like, like I said, Mike and I will be friends for life. I mean, he's just such a fantastic guy, and this worked out so great. I would, um, finances permitting, um, I'm completely prepared to do it again. I have lots of songs, and and mm-hmm. I could do another ten just like this tomorrow, starting yeah. tomorrow. So there's not a problem there. Um, so we'll see where this goes, and and what I get back in terms of feedback, and and maybe some. Um, some uh, other things coming back. And then uh, I'm certainly have entertained that and I'm probably going to do that, but it's a little premature to talk about that at this point, because I just want to get this out there the best that I can. 
Yeah, like you say, you just released it. So here I am already getting yeah. your next nope, album so ready for I've, you. I've thought Sound about like a record it. company, don't I? Where's <laughs> the next product coming out? Come on, Dan, get on <laughs> it right, right now. This has only been out exactly. like six days. What's going on here? That's right. <laughs> well, look at, uh, I watched the CCR one. I mean, they put out three albums in one year Yikes. in 1969. Three albums and like 10 hit songs. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, that was a bit of a different time. And this this album took almost a year to make. So, you know, they take a while. Did you get any inspirations from wanting to do this based on being stuck at home during COVID, thinking what's going to happen in the world in terms of getting out there, but I have all these great songs. Was that any kind of jumping off point for you thinking, hmm, maybe I could do this? Well, that's always been in the back of my mind. I do have a studio at my home here because it's a modest one. I couldn't do a product like what you're hearing on this album here, but I can do demos here. and And I did get my studio. That's, remember I said during COVID, I just made a list of all the things. I lost all my gigs and everything was yep. shut down. And I made yep. a list of all the things I've been meaning to do and started doing them. So actually yeah. COVID was quite quite a good time for me. <laughs> I hate to say that. But, <laughs> but well, that's kind of what okay. I was getting at. You know, did this help in, in, in terms of the creative aspect for you? It, it did, yes. Yeah. And and a, But it's funny how life goes. I mean, I, I, I'm intuitive, I guess, in a sense. I just, I just, what happened last February, I woke up one morning and something clicked in me. And I said, I need to go and record a real album at a real studio with a real producer. And I went to my wife and I said, look, I got to do this and it's going to cost a lot of money, but I got to do it. And I thought she was going to argue with me and she didn't say anything. I was a bit surprised because I was all ready to argue. She kind of knows me well enough if I said that I, w- I was going to do it anyways. Yeah. Okay. Whether I had to fight, you know, everything's a fight, right? It's, it's you got to fight to get the money. You got to fight to, you know, so I thought, okay. But she just said, she looked at me and said, okay, do it. And I was like, but I had this epiphany. I don't know what it was. I just woke up one morning and said that I need to do this. And she and then when maybe I, had the same epiphany. Well, maybe, or she just knows, you know, I've, I've earned it. Like after yeah. all these years, I've, I've earned a decent album. I mean, yeah. you know, I said, come on, I, I've never done this before and I need to do it. I can get the money. Um, you know, I sacrificed a lot of my wages last year that I was playing in the band. So I was doing lots of gigs and, and not taking the wage and paying for my recording and stuff. But it was well worth it to me because... I'm so grateful, so thankful to have the opportunity to have enough gigs to pay for an album and then to do a real album with a real guy. I mean, what what do you want out of life? Yeah. I'm good. Very thankful. Also, I think in terms of the way you set up your life, this is, you know, like you say, you've earned it. You created a most excellent product, Dan, and I just can't wait for people to hear this, to continue to hear it. Can you maybe just say the link one more time? And like I say, I will put it in the uh, the notes. Yeah, in case okay. I appreciate that. Down. So it's, uh, so on Facebook, I don't have a website. I'm just going to use Facebook for now, but it's okay. Don Hayes Music Retro Rock on Facebook. So anyone okay. who's on Facebook, even off Facebook, you can still look at it. Don Hayes Music, D-A-W-N. H-A-Z-E, music, retro rock on Facebook, and all the links are on there. And then it's Razor Distribution that I'm using, R-A-Y-Z-O-R, distro, um, and all the information's on there as well. So it's really easy to find. If you just look up Don Hayes Music Retro Rock on any of the streaming platforms, it'll, it should come up right away. Dan, thank you so much for agreeing to go back to the other side of the microphone and share, well, all of the creative aspirations you had going into this project and um, the final outcome is just astonishing. And uh, thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for taking the leap of faith and getting it all together in just the right way and putting out this masterpiece because I really, really think it's right up there. 
that. I, I really do appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity through Dusty Discs and for, you know, having some interest in my original music. I know I'm the podcast host, but uh, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a musician, a singer, songwriter, and I wanted to get that out there and sort of throw my hat in the ring and give the world my flavor and see what they think. So I appreciate the opportunity from you as well. We appreciate you being the host because we do recognize, of course, first and foremost, you are the musician. But to have you in the driver's seat hosting this podcast because you are the musician talking to other musicians and it's a it's a very, very unique conversation. And if anyone is tuning in for the first time, go back and listen to all the previous episodes where Dan does engage with not only musicians, but people in the music business who've been around for a year or two, shall we say, more like a decade <laughs> <Yes>. or three, <laughs> but um, very, very interesting conversations. So Dan, again, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate that. And we'll have some new episodes out very soon and uh, looking forward to that. It's been a really uplifting experience for me to be able to talk to some of the great guests we've had and, and of course, work with you and, and all the other people at the station. Well, ditto for us too. And by the way, you can listen to music from the musicians that Dan talks with on Dusty Discs Radio every Tuesday and Thursday, all the Canadian musicians. And if you like this particular episode or any of the Liner Notes episodes, please like, subscribe, and share it on social media so that others may enjoy it as well. Lori Dean here, sitting in for Dan Hare and very happy to relinquish the chair to him next week. So thanks so much for being here. Take care. 